Chapter 13 of Harry D. or Making It Out. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Charlotte Rose. Harry D. or Making It Out by Francis J. Finn. Chapter 13 in which is continued and concluded the account of our great game of baseball, and in which I make an agreement with Tom Playfair, which, as the reader will find out later, has an important bearing upon the story. O'Malley got just such another ball as I had presented him in the first inning. It went further this time and had it not been for Percy's promptness in chasing and fielding the ball, he would have made a home run on it. As it was, O'Malley reached third, amid the jubilations of his fellow players. Fox knocked a swift liner straight at Joe White, who caught it and sent it to third to catch O'Malley. Unfortunately, the ball came on an ugly short bound to Richards and went rolling beyond him. Before he could recover it, O'Malley had scored. Earl followed with a single base hit, stole second and remained there as both Hudson and Pullen struck out. Our half of the inning was mercilessly short. White batted a fly to Fox in center field, which Fox caught with ease. I struck out. Percy knocked a grounder and was decided out at first on a very close decision. Seventh inning. Keenan accepted Bennett's chance for an assist on an easy grounder. Cleary, who as a sure hitter had a reputation to sustain, missed the ball three times and retired to explain how it all happened. O'Connor's long fly to left was caught by Percy. For our side, Keenan opened with a modal base hit and made second, while Donald took first on a difficult fly, which O'Connor muffed. Two men on base and no one out. We began to recover from the despondency into which we had been thrown by the events of the last inning. Tom went to the bat, evidently determined to bring in a run. He struck at the first ball pitched to him. There was a sharp click. Foul, out, ruled the umpire. As a matter of fact, Tom had not touched the ball. Earl had snapped his fingers as Tom struck, and the umpire had been deceived. For a few moments, Tom was too angry to speak. He bit his lip, and at length recovering himself, called for time. Few, if any, of the spectators had detected the vile trick. I myself as I happened to be standing near the home plate at the time, had noticed it. It's too bad, I said. Yes, but what can't be cured must be endured, I reckon. All the same, I'll see it doesn't happen again. Drew, to whom Tom had motioned, was now at our side. Look here, then, said Tom. That was no foul, 
Your catcher had worked a rowdyish trick, and we don't want it to happen again. Drew became as angry as Tom. He was an honest boy and somewhat impetuous. I'll put that fellow in the field and bring in O'Malley, he said. No, no, Dan, objected Tom. I guess Earl acted according to his lights. But his lights are mighty poor. It's no use making a show of him. But if you just tell him that we'll stop playing if he does anything like that again, I think he'll take the hint. Leave that to me, said Drew. He took Earl aside and said a few short, sharp words in a low tone to that worthy which brought the blood to his cheeks. Then he returned to his position, leaving the audience to wonder what had been the occasion of the delay. Earl realized that it was to Tom's generosity he owed it that he had not been publicly exposed. The lesson proved a good one. Ever after, he treated Tom with unaffected respect. Nothing daunted, Tom set about coaching with more ardor than ever. You never heard such a storm of vowels as he set flying through the air. Double A and triple E and IOU and what not came volleying forth. And when Harry Quip hit safely, he advanced his letters to squares and cubes till he drove the opposing pitcher desperate. In vain did Drew call time to protest against this singular system of coaching. Our captain had prepared himself against such objections, and showed clearly that he was allowed any language which was not improper or indecent. And what, he added, can be more innocent, more impersonal, than the sweet, full, harmonious vowels of our dear mother tongue. So Tom was permitted to continue his algebraic coaching. But for all his cries of double A square and triple E cube, Richards and Rutters struck out, leaving three men on base, and the score three to one in our disfavor. Eighth inning. I think I was now at my best. In no wise tired, the nervous dread consequent upon facing large boys for the first time had now completely disappeared. And I was determined to give my opponents the sort of balls that they did not want. Tom had taught me to study each batter. In playing among ourselves, I had followed his advice and had soon learned to measure any batsman's strong and weak points after facing him twice or thrice. Drew struck out. O'Malley knocked me a baby fly, which, for a wonder, I held, and Fox followed Drew's example. Joe White succeeded in hitting the ball, but it was awaiting him at first. I, too, sent the ball rolling feebly toward short field. The shortstop, pressed for time, threw White to first base. Percy again became a runner by securing his base on balls, thus advancing me to second. Whereupon Tom began to invoke all the vowels of the English language in such wise that the pitcher lost his head and gave Keenan his base on a bulk. 
So there we stood, three men on base, when Donald stepped up to the home plate. Honest John was so nervous that he reached at every ball pitched him and retired disconsolate with three strikes charged against him. Tom received a rousing cheer as he stepped up to the bat. He was calm and collected, and the small yard was preparing to cheer as one man. He gave the third ball pitched him a vicious blow, and a great cry of exultation arose as it shot out into left field. But O'Malley had been playing far out for Tom's particular benefit, and with a side run succeeded in pulling down what might have been a three-bagger. Score 3-1 to one in favor of the juniors. Ninth inning. Assured that the game was now in their hands, the big boys batted carelessly and went out in 1-2-3 order. Quip opened for us with a single, and the large boys nine began to look very serious when Quip stole second and came in on Richard's safe hit into right field. One run at last, another, and there would be a tie. Richards, following Harry's example, dashed for second on the first ball pitched. Earl threw wild and he was safe. Reuters knocked a bounder to the second baseman and was retired, while Richards was advanced to third. The excitement was now intense. But one man out, but one run needed. Richards on third. But alas! All our weak batters to follow. Hit it, Joe White! Knock the cover off! implored Tom. Keep cool and you do it, sure. And Joe did keep cool. He knocked a long fly into right field. It was prettily caught, but before Hudson could recover himself, Richards was halfway home and the game was a tie. I came to the bat and concluded the innings by striking out. Score 3-3. Three to three. As every boy reader knows, a tenth inning became necessary to decide the game. Tenth inning. Bennett sent a very hot grounder directly over second base. In what manner Keenan ever got there, no one could see. But, all the same, he chased the ball in a dead run and with his right hand alone secured it far out in short center field. How he recovered himself so quickly and, as the runner was within a few feet of the base, sent it like a shot to White, and how White held the ball, thrown as it had been, is something that the boys discussed for days afterward. It was a wonderful play on the part of both. And the game had to be stopped till George and Joe had each doffed his cap to the applauding spectators. Just as play was about to be resumed, there came another interruption. Joe discovered that a blood blister had formed upon his right hand index finger, which had not been accustomed to handle such vicious throws as George's had been. Tom, after some deliberation, 
ordered Quip and White to exchange positions, and play was at length resumed. Cleary struck out and O'Connor was retired by Tom on a foul fly. Now was our chance. We built strong hopes upon this, the tenth inning of the game, for Percy was to be first at the bat. He advanced to the home plate, blushing yet cool. And well might he blush. There was a tumult of applause. The large boys clapped their hands vigorously. The smaller screamed and threw their hats in air, and many of them actually danced. Little Frank, who since his outburst had been scoring with bent and averted head to conceal his tears of mortification, now jumped to his feet and offered to be bet fifty dollars that Percy would make a run. He had no takers. I think Percy's turn at the bat must have occupied full five minutes. It was a game of strategy between him and Pullen. Both were most deliberate. The pitcher, who now knew Percy's weakness at the bat, was determined to force him to hit the ball, while Percy was equally determined not to be forced. One ball, called the umpire. One strike. Percy had made no attempt to hit at the ball. Foul. Two balls. Foul. Three balls. The next came straight over the plate, but as low as Percy's knee. He stood like a statue as it passed him. Two strikes. The next ball promised to be decisive. There was a funereal silence. Frank Bordock's face was aglow with excitement. Many a boy held his breath to await the issue. The ball at length came straight toward the plate and low. Percy was obliged to take it. Foul, called the umpire. The suspense was renewed. The next ball came wide. Four balls. Take your base. Now, Keenan, keep it up, old boy, cried Tom. At the first ball pitched, Percy dashed for second. How he flew over the ground! Before he had cleared half the distance, a hundred spectators, transported with enthusiasm, came crowding about the diamond. As before, Percy accomplished his great slide. He simply tore up the ground, and in his course sent Drew, who was still waiting for the ball, head over heels. Percy had clearly beaten the ball, but when he picked himself up after his collision with Drew, he looked quite pale, although he wore his usual pleasant smile. Our captain noticed the change. When the spectators had been cleared off the field and the pitcher had taken his place in the box, Tom called for time. Frank, he whispered to Bordock, get a glass of water and bring it to Percy while I'm talking. 
then for five minutes or more did tom wrangle with the umpire and drew about the legality of pullen's method of pitching he quoted the rules brought out spaulding's baseball guide and fought every point he could raise to the bitter end he gained nothing he claimed but everything he wanted namely time for percy to recover from the bad shaking up he had suffered of course tom might have called time and given as the reason that the base runner had injured himself but with his rate rare tact he divined at once that percy ordinarily cool and self-contained would be put to the blush by the universal sympathy and suffer more keenly from the pity and attention of the spectators than from his physical injuries so tom contrived to get his friend the needed rest and by his flow of words to centre the attention of every one upon himself after an interval of some three or four minutes tom gave in gracefully and the game was continued evidently percy had fully recovered he worried the pitcher not a little by the manner in which he played up and down between the positions of second base and shortstop he had thrown off his cap and with his head bent slightly forward and his eyes fixed upon the ball he moved up and down with suppleness a lighting quickness to recover to turn one way or the other that delighted the onlookers as much as it annoyed the juniors every time that pullen sent in the ball percy ran almost halfway down to third nor despite the throwing to base of both catcher and pitcher could he be caught napping on the seventh ball pitched percy ran down as usual to the shortstop's position keeping his eye fixed steadily on the ball he saw that it was over the base and judged that george would strike at it so instead of stopping midway he threw back his head and looking straight before him made for third he heard the sharp crack of contact between bat and ball and still running at full speed turned to see it bound into the hands of the shortstop who made a feint at throwing it to the third but seeing that percy was already within a yard of the base wheeled about and with deliberate and careful aim threw it swiftly to first the umpire's batter out was drowned by the voice of drew home home he shouted in an excess of excitement home home roared out nearly the whole infield and outfield for percy with a boldness not looked for by anyone had not stopped at third turning sharply a turn by the way that no other boy in the college but keenan could make toward home so as to lose scarcely a foot he was more than halfway in before the first baseman fairly realized what had happened bennett saw that the game was in his hands and with full swing of the arm he sent it straight and low toward the catcher who with his mask and cap thrown off was standing up upon the home plate his eyes straining and his hands stretched imploringly towards the first baseman 
But even as the ball left Bennett's hand, Percy, now about 25 feet from the home plate, sprang forward and took the most heroic of all his heroic headers. Ball and Percy, which first? The ball certainly was in the catcher's hand while Percy was still shooting all on the ground. But before Earl could turn and touch him, Percy, with an effort quick and violent, had stretched out his right hand and touched the home plate. The game was ours. Tom was beside Percy at once and raised him gently yet quickly from the earth. Our brave base stealer was ghastly pale and staggered even as Tom bore him up. I... I... think I'll sit down, Tom. Tom hurried him over to a seat, then ran for Mr. Middleton. Please, sir, Percy's hurt a little. The boys will all want to shake hands with him, and he'll faint or something, and I know he hates to pose. The prefect clapped his hands, and standing in front of Percy so as to keep the boys from seeing him, waited till all had passed into the blue grass save Frank Burdock, Tom and myself. How do you feel, Percy? asked Tom sympathetically. It's nothing, just a little scratch, I think, answered Percy. He had become very languid. His hair was tossed upon his forehead, and as he leaned with his head resting against the back of the player's bench and his lips quivering, we all perceived that he was suffering keenly. Look, said Tom, he's bleeding. The blood we saw was just beginning to empurple his knickerbockers a little above the knee. At the sight of blood, Frank was terrified beyond measure. Oh, he blubbered, that's all on account of my swearing. Won't you forgive me, Percy? The sufferer smiled, and with the smile something of the color returned. I'm not going to die, Frank. In fact, I feel all right again. You see, I cut myself when I ran against Drew's spiked shoes at second. I didn't intend to slide again, but when I saw the chance to take a run, I thought I'd do it even if I had to be carried home. But that last slide did hurt. It was great, said Tom enthusiastically. I've read about it, but it's the first time I've seen a boy make from second to home on an out at first. Now, said Percy rising, I think we can start for home. You can lean on my arm, said Tom. No, you don't, exclaimed Frank with a touch of his former passion. I'll attend to Percy myself. Tom, of course, submitted. Now, Harry, said Tom, turning to me with his most taking air. How about spending a night in your uncle's house this summer? Will you do it? Yes, I answered at once. End of chapter 13